Join Dennis Seagrave for Den at 10. Well, hello again. Just to continue what I was saying last week about getting my caravan ready. It's going to take us a lot longer this year to have our first trip away. And not just because of the COVID, but because of one or two running repairs we've got to do. I thought I'd get away with just changing the tyres and away we would go, but having changed the tyres we realised that the two smaller front windows were deteriorating with age and needed replacing and we had a problem with the brakes. The brakes won't be too bad, we can soon do that. Just needs a new cable on the one side and just adjust them to, to suit. But the windows, unfortunately, will take a while. Rather than pay postage and send them away and hope they would come back, or the new ones would come back safely and without damage, we decided we'd do what we did last time and take them up to the factory and have them done up there and then collect them when they said they were ready. Probably take two or three weeks to get them done, so... Anyway, we, we went up to, last Monday, we went up to a place called Shelf, just next to Halifax. We'd done this before, we knew the trip, we knew where they were. The last time we went up, we decided we'd make a day of it and go into Hebden Bridge. We'd seen photos of it on the television and write-ups about the canal going through there and the canal side places. Well we got, last time we got to Hebden Bridge and it was rammed. We went twice around the place and couldn't find a car parking spot anywhere. We ended up slowly making our way back home and doing a bit of sightseeing on the way and calling it a, a pub for a lunch. Well this time we went up and dropped off the windows and had a chat with the people as we were going to make the replacement windows and we decided we'd go off to Hebden Bridge. We parked up okay this time, not a problem. Just about 100 yards away from the railway station on one of the car parks there. Now we'd tried to get a meal last time we were up there but this time we realised as a lot of the places that would serve food wouldn't be open yet or if they were open they would be very busy and we probably couldn't get a table outside so we'd used a bit of sense and we'd take some sandwiches and a, a couple of drinks with us we parked up okay, walked into the, the park and had some sandwiches and a, a drink. Then walked up onto the canal bank and walked through the, the part of the town that fronts the canal. Unfortunately for the full enjoyment of the place, the most of the places along the canal side that were so popular and feature in the different documentaries you see or holiday programmes you see about Ebden Bridge weren't open because of the virus and the complications. 
But we wandered around the entire town and looked at different parts, the little marketplace and the area, the square outside the last Fustian mill in Britain with its big shiny steel gnomon in the centre of a big sundial laid out in slabs and stone on the base of the square. An interesting walk round. But as we were walking round I commented about the floods that had been affecting the area over the last few years. They've had several over the last five or six years. They've had about four different floods. And as we walked round, we walked along the canal and we walked over the aqueduct that goes over the river. And we looked down at a, what basically is a, a stream, a wide stream flowing through rocks and stones. Way below where we were standing. And we couldn't work out how or what had caused such disastrous floods. So when I got home I looked it up on the internet and had a look at what flooding had been there. And I was surprised to see that there was some old black and white photos from the 1940s which showed the water halfway up a bus trying to negotiate down through the streets. And yes, something drastic must happen in the hills in the area above Hebden Bridge for this amount of water to flow down. The streets that we were walking that seemed to be ten or more feet above the top of the river were a couple of feet underwater in these films. Frightening really about how the power of the water can do what it did and come up so far, so rapidly. Certainly our sympathies go to the people who live there and the people who try to run businesses when all this happens. A little sobering really. We we live in a part of Derbyshire that if, if we get flooded most of the countryside will be underwater. We're, we're quite well off where we live. Never any risks there. Further down in the town it can flood with nearer the river, but we're fine where we are. So that was the next phase of getting ourselves ready to start going off with the van and enjoying ourselves. I was reading the other day in a magazine, a famous actress was talking about her bit earlier career and she'd been on stage in one of the big theatres in London. Well-known actress now, well-known stage. And she'd agreed to meet her mother after the performance. Well, on the way to meet her mother, she was delayed. Several people wanted autographs. They'd recognised her, they wanted autographs, they wanted photos with her, that sort of thing that delayed her getting to her mother. But when she got to her mother, she described what had happened. And her mother just looked at her and says, Oh, that's very nice for you, dear. Who did they think you were? 
which is a bit of a thing that brings you down to earth. You've gone to see your mum, you've been surrounded by well-wishers and fans, people who instantly recognise you as what you are. But then when you get to your mum, she still sees you as the daughter she's always had and not as somebody who is a rising star and becoming famous. Now many years ago when I was working in Lichfield, we did the opposite, a friend of mine and me. I'd gone out on my lunch break and was wandering around the shops. I'd had something to eat in the local cafe and was wandering through the shops on my way back to the offices. And uh, I'd got on me what in those days you'd call a car coat. A bit like the one as Delboy used to wear on his market stalls. False sheepskin lined, false sheepskin collar, and a thick corduroy outer to the jacket. Just came down sort of below your hips, that sort of thing. Anyway, I, I walked into the, one of the local bookshops and I knew the, the girl has worked there. She was fiancé to a very good friend of mine. We'd been through the scouts and everything together, so very big mate of mine. Anyway, as I walked into this shop, this fiancé of his gave a squeal and come running over to me with her notebook saying, oh, oh, can I have your autograph, please? So I immediately took the book off her and said, yeah, sure, who do I make it out to? Gave a bit of a flourish and wrote the, the legend as she wanted and with a great sweep of my hand, signed my name and gave her the book back. Spoke to her for a few seconds, had a quick glance at a couple of books, and then I walked out of the store. As I got to the door, I turned to give her a smile as I left, and she was surrounded by other members of the staff, wanted to know who I was and what I'd done, looking at the autograph I'd left her in the book. So it wasn't a case of somebody putting me down when I'd become famous, it was a question of this girl and myself making out I was somebody famous and everybody was curious to who it was. It's strange how things jog your memory when you're doing different things. I saw the other night there was a 30th anniversary of the three tenors singing before the 1990 World Cup. Now I'm not a great lover of opera. I couldn't go to the theatre and sit through a complete opera. But certain arias from different operas I can enjoy and listen to. And the Three Tenors concert was like that. It was the better known songs from various places. Even down to things like Cats and more modern Musicals were included in their repertoire that night. 
I remember I sat and watched it from start to finish on the original night, the night before the start of the World Cup. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Made myself a very grainy, awful videotape of it at the time, so I watched it a couple of three times after that. But because of breakup of the marriage and one thing or another, I haven't had that tape for 25 years or more. Elaine had never seen it, so she sat watching the programme with me and was saying, oh, I've not seen this. It's My ex-fella was just waiting for the football to start the following day. He wasn't interested in the concert, so we never saw it. But as she was watching it, we realised that on occasions where they were singing in a language foreign to themselves, they were looking down and reading the words and reading the music off the pedestals in front of them. But when they were singing the more popular things that they'd learnt in Italian as opera singers, or German or whatever language it was in as they'd learnt it originally, they were more open with the way they were singing. And she made some comment about how she could tell when they were enjoying it and when they were singing in a language and a system they understood, their mouths were moving differently. <laughs> I grinned, I said yes. That reminds me of my first year at school, at grammar school. They were trying to teach us French. And they were, in the early days of the lessons, they were talking to teachers how to pronounce in the French way. And I can always remember the early lesson where they were trying to teach us how to pronounce the U, as in loon for moon, and tu for you. And they asked one or two of us to say different phrases with this U sound on it. And it got to me, and I gave forth what I thought was what they wanted. Oh, no, 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 I was told, no. You have to purse your lips more, you have to exaggerate your lips. And he grabbed a pencil and held it vertically, just under my nose, down past my chin, just touching my lips. And he says, say the phrase again, but I want the pencil to be pushed forward by your lips, beyond the point of your nose. And I sat there and I thought, I can't even pronounce English properly, mate, you don't stand a chance. Anyway, he had me do it another couple of times, and I think he, he gave up the ghost then, he, he packed it up. But it's something I've always remembered, this overemphasis. I suppose it's a bit like being in a choir. You see these choir boys in, in church or on television or whatever they're doing, doing the choral stuff, and their mouths are overemphasising what they're saying and what they're doing. I suppose in fairness to me old teacher, that's all he was doing, getting me to emphasise the way I was talking to sound like a Frenchman. <laughs> I can't even sound like an Englishman. 
but we tried. Hey, I got the O level. I ended up doing it for A level, so I must have, I must have done something right. Mind you, for the A level, we had to go on the train to. Uh, there was only about five of us from the school did A level French, and we ended up going on the train to Birmingham for the oral exam, the spoken exam, at Birmingham Town Hall. And I must admit, part way through, I couldn't understand whether the person who was taking the exam and talking to us and listening to us was really enjoying it or not. Occasionally he let a pained expression go across his face, his brow wrinkled and he smoothed himself down with the palm of his hand across his brow. So perhaps I was making him a bit painful with some of my pronunciations. <laughs> I suppose in those days, the late 60s, we still held the belief that if you shouted loud enough at a foreigner, he'd understand what you were saying, so we didn't bother over much. But that was my education and I got on with it. Impressed myself at times. Even now I'll be doing something or playing in one of the quizzes and something will come out of my brain and come forward and I'll think, my God, where did that come from? And really, it's one of the things I watch. Who wants to be a millionaire and things like that? And they phone a friend and the friend gives them an answer. And they say, are you sure? How many percent do you think you're right? And through my time as plain quizzes, and I've been doing it for 40 odd years now, you never ask your teammate, where did that come from? Or how sure are you it's right? Because you never really know. Something clicks and you say, that's the answer. Or you turn around and say, well, I think that could be the answer. That's the definitions. I don't know. That could be the answer or that's the answer. And you don't pick and choose on it because even the person that's talking to you doesn't necessarily know where the answer or that thought came from. It's just something that's there and you pick it up. And it's, it's how things work when we're talking as well. We'll talk in the week and Elaine will say, Oh, that's a that's a bit of a that's a bit of a tale. Remember it for Sunday, then you can put it on your next chat. And invariably I've forgotten by the time I get here. Having said that, I have picked up a couple of notebooks now that I have close to me when I'm watching the television or doing something in the, in the evening. And as things happen I, I jot them down, I make notes. And it's getting there slowly. I'm getting into a rhythm. <laughs> it's only taken me six months to do it, but I'm getting into a rhythm now. I hope I'm not boring you with one or two things that are personal to me rather than talking about life in general and what's happening in the bigger world. The trouble is, there's not much happening in the bigger world at the moment. 
nothing is really jogging my memory about events of the past or the bigger events of the past. I talked the other week about Donald Campbell. It was his 100th anniversary of his, his birth. He would have been 100 years old. These are the sort of things that click into place with me and give me something more general to talk about than events in my life. Talking of major events in life, I saw the other day that Michael Collins, the third member of the Apollo 11 moon landing crew, had passed away. Tony leaves Buzz Aldrin now, still with us. Neil Armstrong, the first man to step on the moon, passed away a few years ago. Yes, 1969. I remember sitting up and watching the most grainy, snowflaked bit of film of Armstrong coming down the ladder and landing his foot on the moon. The first man ever to do it. One of those historic moments that you always remember. You always file it away. But being the sort of people we were at the time, we we sat there and we thought, if he's the first man to set foot on the moon, who put the camera there to film him doing it? And when you think about it, there was a quite a movement at the time that said it was a fake. This moon landing was a fake. It was done in a big film studio somewhere. And the logic of that moment is, is there. The, you know, was it a fake? Who put the camera there to film them coming down the ladder? You know, we'd had the excitement of watching this black and white hazy film of the moon's surface passing underneath them and then slowing down and slowly getting closer and then the moment where he said the eagle has landed and everything went still and then they had a kip and it wasn't till the following day that they finally left the capsule to go down onto the surface and I can always remember there was program on talking about how the landing had gone and how it was filmed and what they'd done and different ones were the same as me where did the camera come from that filmed them outside if nobody had been out there before apparently it was on some telescopic devices wound out from the base of the capsule and filmed it all but I didn't go into the technicalities then it's it was said how it was done but I know there was there was a bit of a debate on and there was a couple of semi-comedians on this debate and one of them then said oh well it's it's all said it's done on the film studio it's all it's all a sham this is it just make my day if on the horizon a band of red Indians appeared along the horizon like they do in the classic 
cowboy films. I use the term Red Indians there because that's what he called them. To be political now, they're Native Americans, but that was the parlance in those days and that's what he said. But yes, that was a momentous occasion. Everybody crossing their fingers that all would go well. And it did. And we got some impressive stuff. Raising the flag on the moon's surface. Yeah. Excellent. And then of course, Apollo 13. Now I'm turned into a very realistic film of that event where part of the spaceship blew off as they were going towards the moon and how we read and heard every day how the different things were being thought through and working out how to get them safely back that incredible slingshot around the back of the moon to propel the craft back towards Earth rather than trying to turn it round in mid-flight. Amazing what the scientists did in those days to sort it all out. The daft thing about it is that a common word now in parlance is, well it's it's not science is it? <laughs> To those of you that are old enough to remember it, one of the earliest little home computers was the Commodore 64. Called a 64 because that was about the size of the power inside it. And the actual computer that took them to the moon and back was smaller than the Commodore 64. It couldn't do a fraction of what the home computer can do now. But yes, it's not until you look at these things that it said Michael Collins had passed away at the age of 90. And you think, where have all those years gone? 90. Then you realise that time is ticking away for yourself. I've just written a birthday card for me, eldest grandson. He'll be 20 on Wednesday. Good grief, 20. And he's my grandson. And it's times like that that you realise as time is ticking by. In my head, I'm still 27. But when you, something like this happens and you start adding up the years, you realise that you may be 27 in your head, mate. But time is passing you by now. I suppose one of the markers of the modern age is that I've just had my second virus jab. Last weekend I had my second dose of the vaccine, which means I'm in the older age brackets. 
but at least it's given me a little bit of confidence with that. I wasn't too bothered about going out and about. I didn't mix in close company with without a mask or anything like that, but it didn't stop me going out for walks or doing a bit of shopping. But it gives you more confidence now that if other people are careless around you, you may still stand a chance of being okay. Anyway, I'm just looking at the clock. I've been rabbiting away here for quite a while now without really talking about anything. So I'll leave it at that for this week. And I'll give you my usual ta-da for now. <laughs> Used to be a comedian during the Second World War. Tommy Handley had a very, very successful radio programme called ITMAR. Short for It's That Man Again. And he always used to use the expression TTFN, as in Tatar for now. So I'm not the first to say it, but I will. Tatar for now. <laughs>